this morning, and this is the second to last of our sermons in Daniel, for reasons which will be more obvious next week. We're going to handle chapters 11 and 12 together, but, but that'll wrap us up. We'll probably have a, uh, a one-off sermon after that, and then as we start to get into the academic year, we'll be turning to the end of Genesis. We've, the last couple of falls, we've been in Genesis, and so we will turn from a book that is very difficult to understand what's going on uh, to characters like Jacob, who are unfortunately all too familiar uh, to most of us. Um, Well, with that, though, we do get into what is uh, maybe a very confusing three chapters in Daniel, if you weren't confused enough with some of these others. Uh, 10, 11, and 12 are a vision that go together, but uh, chapter 10 is really the, be- the preparation for the vision that Daniel will receive, and so uh, we'll handle that this morning. So let's start in chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the, for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his voice like the sound of a multitude." And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me. And set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. 
Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, behold, when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we keep saying this in Daniel, but we definitely need to pray to gain understanding. So let's pray. Father, we do know that you've given us your word so that we can have clarity and confidence in you. So would you give us clarity and confidence by your spirit that your word would speak to us and make plain to us the good news of Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. We were, I was at my parents' place uh, recently, and they have a bunch of bins of old toys. And, uh, and we, we discovered old G.I. Joes were in them. And uh, I don't know if you know G.I. Joe. You know, there was like an earlier version of G.I. Joe, which was like Barbie doll size. Uh, you know, but I had the 80s, early 90s G.I. Joes, right? The real American hero. Um, and it was fantastic. You know, there was a TV show. There was, it was ever, you know, it was, it was awesome. But it's such an amazing, like, Cold War item, right? Like a, a Cold War toy, right? Like this is, this is what we did with our anxieties and fears, right? We poured them into something like G.I. Joe, right? Which not only, which not only sort of made the enemy less scary, but gave, you know, gave you confidence that we were going to win this thing, uh, that we were going to pull through. It, it's funny because, you know, as the Cold War ended and faded into the background, so did that toy line. <laughs> I don't think that's an accident. We're always trying to find a way to cope with fears, with living in a fearful time. Uh, whether that's, well, some of, the co- some of those coping mechanisms are reasonably healthy and some are maybe not. What Daniel is receiving here is preparation to be shown a great vision out of the book of truth. And it's scary. A lot of what Daniel's been shown is kind of scary. And in one sense, then, what Daniel is being taught in this passage really does help us understand the whole of the book in a lot of ways and the things we're supposed to take from it. What does it mean to live by faith in a fearful age, in a time when there's a lot to be scared of? And I think this passage shows us three things. We should live with candor, we should live with clarity, and we should live with courage. Candor, clarity, and courage. Think about what's going on at the beginning of this passage. We're told that it's the third year of King Cyrus. So, 
Daniel is into the Persian Empire, that period of time. Uh, Daniel's very old. I mean, almost certainly in his 80s at this point, maybe even older than that. Uh, He's an old man. And he gets shown this vision. But before that, what we learn is that he has been mourning for three weeks. In verse 2, we're told he spent three weeks mourning up until this point. Uh, Later on, when uh, the angel speaks to him, uh, verse 13, he'll say, he'll tell Daniel uh, he started out 21 days ago. In other words, as soon as Daniel started uh, into mourning and prayer. But why is he mourning? He doesn't really tell us up front. You can piece a few things together, however, though, if if we stop and, and pay some attention. In verse 12, the angel tells him that he was sent when Daniel set his heart to understanding. Daniel wants to understand. What does he want to understand? I'm not quite sure, actually. Maybe it's all of those visions. Maybe he's just been ruminating on all these visions that he's seen along the way. I mean, you would think they probably stuck with him. Uh, We also know this, that one of his concerns, especially in chapter 9, was about Israel returning out of exile and being able to rebuild the temple. This is the third year of Cyrus. In the second year of Cyrus, he sent people back. And so, some of those prayers have started to be answered. Of course, we know that the people also ran into a lot of trouble. You can read Ezra 4 and read some, you know, some about this. As they started to rebuild the temple, uh, there, were, there were a lot of different problems that came up. So, maybe Daniel's hearing about some of that. But Daniel regardless of how all those things converge, Daniel is mourning in order to understand what it is that God is doing. He is trying to grapple with an understanding. And we actually see Daniel, if you think back, and if you've been, you know, in this series along the way, if you think back, this is actually typical of Daniel in chapter 9. I mean, the whole chapter is set into motion because Daniel is confessing the sins of Israel. It's a long prayer of repentance. In chapter 8, when he finishes receiving a vision, we're told that he is overcome by it. can hardly get out of bed. The vision he receives in chapter 7, he's alarmed by. Now, the earlier stories, we aren't actually told all that often about what Daniel's internal state is, but You can see over and over again, right, Daniel is concerned about what's going on. He is being honest about the situation that they're in. Now, what's important to understand, though, is that what Daniel is telling us is that to be concerned about God's people is more than being concerned about your surrounding culture. It isn't to say that we should be blind to that or the particular problems that we have right now in the year 2020 <laughs> and, or 2022. What year is it? Good grief. Uh, the year 2022 and 
Charleston <laughs> in America. You know, I'm not saying we should be blind to those. I, I hope we talk about them off. I hope that's something that comes up in my sermons. I hope that's something that comes up in our conversations and care for one another. And yet, it is something more than that. You see, our big problem is not what the state of America is right now. Our big problem is that we are caught up in a cosmic war. I'm not trying to equivocate, right? I mean, there are certainly going to, there are certainly times and places, and usually with retrospect, we can see there are times and places in which, you know, it may be better or worse than in other times or places. But that's not really the big problem. That's not the main problem. The main problem is also more than my individual circumstances, my personal situation. It isn't to say that that doesn't matter. It isn't to say that, you know, I don't know what's going on in Daniel's life. Maybe he has stuff going on, struggles he has. I don't know. He doesn't tell us about those. It isn't to say that those don't matter, that there's not real things we need to deal with, but that there is more than that going on. And that, in fact, maybe in a certain way, what's going on in my life is a skirmish in something much bigger that's happening. You know, I, I say that what, he's called to, what we're called to is candor because we're being called to be honest. But honest, even when it's hard. Not merely saying what's nice to admit, but acknowledging the difficulty of it. And it's funny, isn't it, how the Bible all over the place tells us it is hard to follow the Lord. You hear it, well, I think you see it in the story after story throughout the Old Testament, don't you? You hear it in the Psalms over and over and over again. Jesus over and over again says it will not be easy. I mean, like 20 different ways. He tells us that. All of the New Testament tells us that. And isn't it strange, though, that we somehow come up with the idea that if you're following the Lord well, that somehow you'll be blessed materially, physically, your health will be good, your finances will be strong, that that's continually a trap that Christians have fallen into over, I mean, millennia. We're not unique in that either. (laughs) People have fallen into thinking that over and over and over again. Isn't it strange that we think, here's a, a slightly different version of that, that if we are faithful to God, if we are faithful as Christians, that then doing the right thing will come easily. Or making the hard decisions will come easily. 
the Bible rejects that whole way of thinking. Time and time and time again. Again, Daniel, just think about Daniel for, for a minute here. Daniel is the only character that we have, you know, multiple chapters where he's a main character and that we don't really know anything significantly wrong with him. I'm sure he's not sinless. But almost every other character that we get more than a few chapters that they touch on, their sin becomes really obvious. Again, we're going to get to the latter half of Genesis, and believe me, that will be in neon lights for everyone to see. But we don't actually know anything about that with Daniel. Think about Daniel's life. I mean, he's seen God work over and over and over again. He's had visions. God's revealing things about the end of time to him. And yet, I mean, here he is mourning. For at least eight decades of Daniel's life. And here he is, in his old age, still grappling with what it is that God is doing in his life and the people and you know the people of God. What is he doing? Candor never, of course, means setting aside the fruit of the Spirit. You know, not, it doesn't mean setting aside gentleness and kindness. You know, things like that, patience. But we're told to be honest. You know, certainly honest, especially, especially with ourselves. That's your cold cup of coffee for this morning. It's the candor that we're supposed to have. But notice what is given to Daniel is clarity. Daniel is out with some guys. I don't know what they're doing. This is a little bit like Paul on the road to Damascus. There's there's some guys with him, and then all of a sudden some vision pops up. These These guys don't even know what's going on. Something strange is happening, and they run. And Daniel receives this vision of a man, and, you know, we could, you know, verses five through, you know, six here about, gives this fantastic description of the person that's, you know, white linen, bright white linen, (laughs) has gold. His body's like barrel, which is kind of like an aqua color, which I don't know what that, I don't know what that means he looks like. I was thinking about that this week. I don't have any idea. His appearance is like lightning, which is about the brightest thing that Daniel can think of, right? Because you know how it is when you actually see lightning, right? It's if you're up close, it's blinding. It kind of sears in your vision for a, for a moment anyway. The sound of his words is like the sound of a multitude. This is, there's no amplification in the ancient world, right? So this is him saying it is overwhelmingly loud. <laughs> so he gets this vision. There's debates by commentators about whether this is the one of the angels, or whether this is a vision of God. I think it's one of the angels. But then Daniel goes on to have conversation with at least a few angels. Again, another place where, the com- where it's a little bit ambiguous, and the commentators all take different views on this, 
is it, it's it's unclear if this is the one angel he's talking to the whole time, or it seems like there's at least a few that seem to speak up at different times. I'll leave that to your own reading to figure out. It's not the most important question, really, but uh, but then he's told by the first one that speaks with him uh, in verses what is it eleven or twelve through fourteen about the spiritual forces that are at work. He hears about a few different characters. So, there's this angel speaking up, and this angel has been with the kings of Persia. And then he hears about another who's called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Prince is a little misleading, I think, in English. It doesn't mean it's some physical heir of the royal house. It just means somebody who's stands out in prominence. And it's almost certainly here speaking of somebody who's uh, angelic or more accurately demonic force at work. And then you hear of Michael, whose name means who is like God, (laughs) Uh, who is one of the good guys, one of the angels who shows up. And this fits actually, though it's kind of strangely framed here, but this fits in what we've been seeing all along throughout the book of Daniel, right, is that there is, and as we've already alluded to in this sermon, more at play in this world than we tend to notice or see. Certainly that, not that our eyes can see. That the real thing that's going on is Satan's warfare against God. And we've talked about how our political identifications are fluidly involved with that <laughs> conflict. Um, that the line is not really between these empires exactly, but is between the forces of Satan and God. But the victory is assured. Daniel keeps hearing that. He's going to hear that in the vision that follows. Even though there's a lot that's scary, Daniel keeps hearing that that, that is assured. So, look, Daniel gets clarity about what God is doing. Not that he can say in any particular moment, well, I know this guy's on God's side and this guy's on Satan's side. That's not what he's told. Instead, what he is given is a kind of an overlay for a map. Right? You know, maps are always to some degree an interpretation of the world around us. We're always ma- we're mapping something onto that idea, right? So there's there's maps of the terrain of a place. So that's a way of thinking about a place, right, where we're thinking about elevation. <laughs> and we're thinking about waterways. Um, there are maps that are political maps, right? Where we're thinking about boundaries and we're thinking about who is in charge of different places. These are all kinds of different maps that we have. And, you know, maybe you've seen maps where you can put different overlays on them, right? Um, especially in electronic age, we can do this a lot, a lot easier. Um, well, what Daniel's been given here is a kind of an overlay for his understanding of space and time. That God's 
warfare is moving ahead and that he will succeed. That Daniel is not supposed to interpret his times based on what he thinks, who he thinks is going on, is, is winning, who he thinks in terms of humans are on the right side or the wrong side. That's a little hard to do, isn't it? I'm not saying that you can't have clarity in terms of a particular moral question. But what God is doing in the midst of all of these things is always a bit of a mystery. But Daniel's being shown how it will all work out. Maybe not in this moment, but he's being shown how it will work out in the end. Daniel's not being told what's going to happen, you know, this particular year. But he is being shown what God is doing in the long run. And that begs the question, where do we think the battle lines are drawn? Is it the next election? Is it the next Supreme Court ruling? Is it over what movies or music are coming out? Is it over parenting styles? There's lots of places we love to draw the line where we know what God is doing. And again, I'm not saying we can't have clarity on particular moral questions. But we love to think that what we can do is figure out what God is doing and be the one to drive it. Daniel hasn't driven a thing by his actions. In fact, the only thing we are told that Daniel does that changes anything is what? Prayer. It's the only thing that Daniel does that changes anything. Daniel's not asking the question, well, is Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Cyrus, or whoever it is that he happens to be serving at the time, is he the right horse to back? He is simply asking how he can be faithful, you see, because once we start to understand that it is really the cosmic warfare that is, the mo- that is the really the important thing, we start to think on different battle lines, right? And the first battle line, Scripture really gives us a few, right? The first battle line is my own heart. the war between good and evil in me. And again, as we've already kind of mentioned uh, indirectly, but it certainly applies very clearly in this sense, right? To be a Christian is not to have that warfare dissolved. It is to have the battle line drawn even clearer in my own heart. The, The other battle line is with the world, which again, as we've, you know, say often here, doesn't mean the physical world. 
It doesn't mean the political entities and the other things that are at work. It is the mold into which we are pressed. That's how Paul kind of frames it in Romans 12. It's the, what we are asked to conform to. Uh, one theologian, a guy named David Wells, says it's whatever, is, whatever teaches us to call good evil and evil good. And of course, the battle line is between the Lord and Satan. Not because Satan is any match for God, but because Satan is trying to be a match for God. But it's more than just the fact that Daniel is reminded about this cosmic warfare. He is given a glimpse of glory. Just seeing this angel causes Daniel to pass out. <laughs> Do you notice that? In verse 9, he says, I fell asleep. Well, he's, he, he was knocked unconscious. That's what that means. He didn't lay down to take a nap because he was bored. No, he passes out. He's knocked unconscious by the sight of this angel. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because that's how the glory of God works. That's not even the direct glory of God. Is the glory of the angels is just a residual effect of being in God's presence. We see the same thing with Moses. Uh, back in Exodus 34, after, after Moses has been up on the mountain, comes down, finds the golden calf, breaks the tablets, he goes back up the mountain again to reestablish the covenant with God. And he asked God to show him his glory. And God says, well, you can see my back as I pass by. Because you can't take it to see me face to face. You know, and he hides him in the cleft. Do you remember what happens when Moses comes down the mountain at the end of chapter 34 in Exodus? Some of you may remember. He comes down, he reads the people, the covenant again, kind of, Again, reestablishing it. But we're told the people couldn't even look at him. Because the radiance of God's glory was still radiating off of him. The residual effect of having been in God's presence was that people couldn't even look at Moses. He had to wear a veil for a time until it sort of wore off. And every time Moses would go and speak to God, the same thing. And he'd have to come out and wear a veil for a while. When the glory of God is seen, it's always seen as being this unapproachable light. It is the beauty of God, which is so compelling that it, it undoes us. I mean, that's the, that's the situation, right? When you we see this all throughout the Bible. When people come into God's presence, even when an angel shows up, he's just got some residual, you know, radiation off of God, uh, people are just undone. I mean, maybe you've had an experience like that with a song, with a painting that you stop and 
pay attention to. I mean, and that's just a little glimpse of how beauty undoes us. And to be in God's presence is to be in the presence of something so unimaginably profound. And yet there's something curious that we're told about God's glory in the Gospel of John in particular. We're told that Jesus shows God's glory veiled in the flesh. And in particular, He shows His glory by going to the cross. Because the thing that's so profound about God is not even the sight of Him. It's His character. The thing that's even more (laughs) undoing, (laughs) that's even more mind-blowing, that is even more radically reorienting, is to behold God's character in His sacrificial love for us. See, Daniel gets not merely the story that there's this cosmic warfare going on, but he gets a profound glimpse into the love of God, the power of God. Again, just catching the residue of it off of the angels. This, there will be more of it that will come in the vision. But we see the beginning of that happening here is that so that what we are told is that we ought to have clarity not merely on the battle that is waging between you know, the upstart Satan against God that he will lose, but the goal to which it is all driving, which is to be with God. And God will do everything he needs to to make it happen. In fact, he will give the life of his son to make it happen. That's the clarity we need. That's what sustains us when we're being honest about how hard things are, when, we're, when we are being honest, that isn't easy. Because what sustains us is that my hope isn't that it will be fun today or tomorrow, but that I'll see beauty itself, that I'll be with the one whose love is so great that he would give himself. That's my hope. And that's so much better than just having it a little easier today. It's what orients us and it's what gives us this last point, courage. Notice what Daniel is told in verse 12 and then more in verse 19 he is told the the most repeated command in the Bible, in verse 12, fear not. Do not fear. He's told that again in verse 19. The angel says, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. You know, I've, I've said this in passing, I know, in 
this series a few times, but this is so helpful to understand, especially about apocalyptic literature, like these visions in Daniel. We think about the book of Revelation. Uh, there's a few times Jesus speaks this way. It almost always tells you exactly what you're supposed to take away from it. And we get all caught up in the fantastic imagery and trying to coordinate, you know, what, 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 we see, what we're seeing in the visions with things we know in history. Of course, some of it is we're already told is going to be in the future. So why we think we could coordinate it all, I don't know. But that's what we get caught up in. And we miss the fact that there are commands given to Daniel. He is told this is what to take from it. Do not fear. Be strong and courageous. That's what he's supposed to take from it. He's going to see all this stuff. We'll look at it next week. He's going to see all this stuff. What Daniel should take away from it is be strong and courageous. And all the things that we have learned, and that we know so much more being on the other side of Jesus. What we're supposed to learn is to be strong and courageous. Here's the thing about courage. Courage is not about not feeling fear. It's about what you do with your fear, what you do in the face of your fear, what you do in the face of your anxiety, what you do in your sorrow. Courage is about what you do with them. And Daniel is told he's going to get a glimpse into the book of truth, into the decrees of God, which is wild stuff. There's a, you know, when I was at Harvard, um, you know, many of you would have probably seen actually the Harvard crest. It's a shield that has three books on it. And the word veritas, you know, truth is written to, over top of it. Um, there, there's no record of how they came up with the Veritas seal. There's only kind of folklore around it. But it is one interesting thing about it is when you, if you know where to look around campus, if you find older versions of it that predate the 19th century, you'll recognize that the bottom book is face down. You can see the spine on the back of it and some of the old engravings and some of the old, um, some of the old ver most of the old versions of it. And it's pretty clear that these Puritans thought about God's truth in three ways. Uh, there was, of course, the general revelation that he'd given us, right? He'd given us minds and we can understand the world and there's the book of nature. He'd given us a special revelation, Scripture, which teaches us how we ought to, how we ought to live, right? We call it, you know, that special revelation of Scripture. But then there is the truth of what he has decreed will happen. And that book is not open to us. It's face down. Why they flipped it, and the long story of Harvard is a whole another story for a different day. But that's a helpful image here of what 
Daniel is getting. The book of truth that's being opened is not Scripture. It is the decrees of God about what is to come to pass. And Daniel's going to get a little glimpse into that. And we will too. But that ought to give us courage. You see, the candor with clarity is what gives us courage. The confidence that it is God who is at work. And again, being on the other side of the cross, we can see this so much more clearly than even Daniel could see it. That we know what God has done to break the power of sin. We know what God has done to to fool Satan. What God has done to undo the power of death. There's a it was a theologian uh, late 19th century uh, at Princeton named B.B. Warfield. Uh, he's a famous Presbyterian theologian. Uh, interestingly enough, B.B. Warfield's wife, uh, they, had, they had an experience when they were first married. They were in Germany. He was doing graduate study there, and they were caught, kind of like Luther actually, uh, out in a storm with lightning and all this other stuff. It had such a profound effect on her uh, that the rest of her life she could hardly function. She was extremely anxious. I don't it's always dangerous to try to read backwards like modern diagnoses, but, uh, you know, had some sort of severe anxiety disorder <laughs> is how we would put it now. And Warfield spent most of his career simply writing short theological works. He, he didn't write very much that was very long because his day was spent going back and forth from his house to the school, back and forth to care for his wife. But he did write a little interesting piece called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. You can find it online. It's not very long. You might enjoy it. This is what he says. He says, we call our Lord the man of sorrows, and the designation is obviously appropriate for one who came into the world to bear the sins of men and to give his life as a ransom for many. But, he goes on, We must bear in mind that our Lord did not come into the world to be broken by the power of sin and death, but to break it. This is a man acquainted with sorrow. Undoubtedly frustrated. In certain ways by, you know, his situation. And and yet, and yet, he knew that what mattered was not merely that God had entered in. Not merely that Jesus had suffered for us, but that he did that to break the power of sin and death, to break the power of evil, to break the power of Satan himself, to put an end to the warfare. And that's why we have courage. That's why Daniel should have courage. That's why you should have courage this morning is because we know that Jesus has won. That doesn't mean I have answers for this or that particular situation in your life. You're supposed to have courage to handle those the way God calls you to. Courage is not trying to guess what is the right horse to back. Courage is about being faithful in the midst of all the questions that we have.
It is about living as God has taught us to live. That is courage. Not trying to convince ourselves that we need to get behind this or that person, that we need to get behind this or that cause when we know it's compromised. It's to follow the Lord. You see, candor with the clarity of the gospel is what actually teaches us to follow Him. And strangely enough, it is that courage that actually teaches us to have even more candor, to even be even more honest, and it drives us back to the clarity that we need in the gospel. And you can see how courage helps us to grow in that way, right? It helps us to be more and more honest about who we are in this world, who we are before God, and it will drive us deeper into Jesus. So do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have courage not because of who we are, not because of the skills we bring to bear, not because of the wisdom that we have, but in our need. Your Son has done everything that is needed. Lord, teach us not to fear what is to come, but rather give us courage through our fears, through our anxieties, through our sorrows to follow you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.